Welcome to the Next Level Brands podcast, where we share stories about the food and CPG world with experts in the trenches about how to build a successful brand today. Now, your host, G. Stephen Clear. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us on the Next Level Brands podcast. We're brought to you today by Kitchen to Shelf, the educational arm of Next Level Brands and providers of online and in-person courses, workshops for CPG entrepreneurs at any stage of growth. If you're selling on a regional basis at farmer's markets or maybe just online and you want to expand your retail distribution, you should look into the courses and webinars from Kitchen to Shelf. Want to learn more about distributors, co-packers, trade funds? Kitchen to Shelf can help you learn what you need to know to grow. Details available at kitchentoshelf.com. That's kitchen, the number two, shelf.com. Hi, I'm Steve Clare, and today I have as my very special guest, Nona Lim. She is, of course, the founder and CEO of Nona Lim's. She was also a former competitive fencer who believed in the health benefits of a nutritious diet, but didn't want to sacrifice the amazing flavors of foods that she actually enjoyed. In 2014, she launched her Nona Lim's brand, inspired by her childhood in Singapore and that country's melting pot of culinary traditions and flavors from all over Asia. Based in Oakland, California, Nona pioneered the fresh Asian food category and is the category leader with her range of Asian comfort foods that are delicious, convenient, and better for you due to clean label ingredients. The company's award-winning products can be found at retailers across the United States, as well as online at www.nonalim.com. Welcome to the show, Nona. Thank you so much for having me, Steve. Really excited to be here. I, I, I'm really glad because it's been a while. I've, I've, I've been trying to, to, to get you on the show for a while. It's, it's been, it's really good uh, to talk to you and uh, just uh, to take a moment to thank you for you mentioned this just a little bit ago, all of the trade shows, expo, everywhere else that you have exhibited at and so graciously provided generous heapings of your awesome products. <laughs> and all of us who attend want to thank you because there's always a line at Nona Limbs. You can always tell. And that that to me says you have a winner in this industry when, you know, when people in the industry will stand in line for your product. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess that's true. Um, and I suppose... There's a lot of kind of, I would say, different kinds of products at the trade shows and yeah. maybe not as many savory options. And so I know that around lunchtime, yeah, <laughs> our booth definitely gets really busy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, right. Because you, you know, you want, you want something with a little bit of substance uh, to it. And, um, you know, whether it's the broths or the noodles or whatever, I mean, that, that just, just works for people. So um, I want to go back a little ways. So, so you were, um, you know, when you started out, you were working in the industry. You were doing some stuff with food delivery, right? Gosh, when I first started out. Yeah, I guess so. It is kind of quite a long, convoluted story. So, you know, I <laughs> so I grew up in Singapore, and you can tell from my accent that um, it's not entirely American. Uh, spent about, yeah, spent about eight years then working in London before moving to the Bay Area. Ah. And so, yeah, so I moved to the Bay Area almost, gosh, almost 15 years ago um, and decided to give up. Uh, my career in uh, management consulting, software consulting, you know, because my husband got a job here and then tried to decide what do I want to do next. So at that point, I just um, kind of gone back to competitive fencing. So I was representing Singapore uh, as a fencer. At the same time, I decided to start a site hustle uh, with meal kit delivery. So that's how I got started right. into food. <laughs> and that was way back in, in 06, right? Before, you know, all the like blue aprons of the world, HelloFresh, and, and nobody existed then. So technically, yeah. I did create the category. Uh, but obviously, I think I didn't go about it the right way. I didn't kind of raise money, so on and so forth. I was really doing it as a one-woman show. 
just testing things out at that time. And and has your has your experience in fencing helped you with working with buyers? Because do they know you can handle a sword? <laughs> <laughs> you know, less so the buyers, but it certainly helped me in so many different ways um, in business. Right? I think that um, uh, the ability to focus uh, is really a good one. You know, sometimes you know when when bad things come your way, and it comes your way a lot when you're fencing. Like you know, if you get a if you lose a point that you don't think you should have, you know, how do you stay focused and, and not, you know, lose focus of what's happening and, and go on to lose the next five points. So that ability to compartmentalize and to stay focused has really translated very well to business. And then just the, the discipline, right? I think just your hard work, that, that persistence, um, right. definitely. Has translated yeah. Well. yeah. Um, when you start, when you started out, um, were you like a, a lot of people who, are are basically leaning a lot on like your mom's recipes or recipes of favorite places that you went to in Singapore or how did you start with the initial concept? You know, this is where I, I started with the whole meal kit idea, right? So the, the original meal kit idea was that, you know, um, back in those days, literally back in 06, um, you don't get a lot of uh, prepped food um, at Whole Foods or in grocery store. So I wanted to create a product where it makes it everything is prepped so that you can cook at home, which is very prevalent these days with all the different right. kit ideas. So I started with that. And then with that, it wasn't actually kind of like my mom's recipes. It's more around things that I would eat because I was too busy to cook from scratch. And I wanted to appreciate the great produce um, and ingredients that you get uh, from the farmer's markets here. And then at the same time, you know, to really help me optimize my um, performance, I learned that I was kind of a gluten intolerant and dairy intolerant, and and that really had an impact on ah. on my fencing. And so, you know, I started working with a lot of nutritionists, functional medicine doctors to really understand a lot more kind of the the science behind food nutrition. And I created a whole meal plan that's based on that. Because at the end of the day, you know, I was competing at a much older age than most of my competitors, right? A lot of them were like 10 years younger than me. Um, <laughs> and I had to keep up with that, right? And so I found that, you know, I might be able to keep up with them um, at training and maybe in competitions, but where I definitely was feeling my age was in the recovery time. And so, you know, really having the right nutrition was key to that. And so I designed my meal kit around that. So it was all very much around taste because coming from singapore everything has to taste good we, we love right. our food right so taste was a big component because of my singapore background and then nutrition and better for you is a very big focus because of my fencing background really wanting to perform and then convenience because you know we have no time so those three things stayed with me even after i decided to uh, transition out of meal kit to go into cpg and then when I went into CPG, that was when then I started really leaning back into the flavors that I grew up with, that I really enjoyed and appreciated. Um, and those are all the different Asian flavors. Um, and so the business kind of evolved that way. You know, it, it didn't start off with kind of um, my mom or my grandma's recipe, but I suddenly then reached back to, you know, all the food that I ate in Singapore and, and tried to take a lot of that Asian flavors, but make it with good much cleaner, better for your ingredients that you find in the U.S. So, so that was a really actually, I mean, um, a good pivot from the, the meal kit experience did not go wasted. It was, you were able to apply a lot of that stuff to the, the CPG side. When, when you started, Nona, did you, um, did you think about like retailers in Northern California, whatever you could work with? 
Did you have some people who wanted to try? How, how'd you just start into, okay, I'm going to put this in a package and sell it? <laughs> Honestly, I was ignorant and naive um, <laughs> when I decided to pivot into CPG. But I was grateful that back in those days, you know, um, the Whole Foods Forager, uh, very active then, you know, half uh, yep. for my soups, for my products, really loved it. You know, was willing to give me a chance, and I got, you know, got our soups into into Whole Foods in a very small way, um, and that's how I got started, right? And what I did literally was I took the soups that were on our meal plan and detox program and put them into pouches, and right. that's how we because a lot of the other products that we are uh, the meals that we had the meal kits just had zero shelf life. You're talking about, you know. Um, wild Alaskan salmon with a miso dressing, right? And, and right. butcher right. and soba noodles, right? It's just absolutely delicious, but no shelf life. So, <laughs> <laughs> and, and whereas soups had good shelf life. So literally we were filling it by hand. Um, we had like a chemistry, what would we do? We went to Amazon and got like a little, a little stand that you use in chemistry. We got like little metal funnels made. We were measuring by hand and filling it into pouches and stealing it with this little stealer that you bought for less than a hundred dollars from Amazon, right? <laughs> it was absolutely not scalable, not sustainable, but we made it work. And then we, we started selling to, you know, we started delivering as well to like the 10 Whole Foods in the Bay Area, like literally in San Francisco, Oakland, Berkeley, not right. even in the peninsula, right? Just did that and I started selling to Rainbow Grocery and all the local uh, grocery stores. So started out really, really small. Um, and then grew from there, you know, got our first loan from Whole Foods. They had a, a local producer loan program. And then yes. They, you know, that was so amazing. Yes, that was a great, that was a great program. And I remember, I, I, I think, matter of fact, I think actually we first met at one of those, um, one of those events, I think it was at Fort Mason. And mm -hmm. I was working with Hip Chick Farms that also was one of the winners at that time. And I yeah. think that's where we got the first, the first taste of, of, uh, of your great, your great stuff. I mean, it was awesome. Um, they've kind of done a pivot too. So, so sort of yeah. they went away from that and the forgers all went away yeah. and we went to everything going to Austin, whatever. And now they've kind of, you know, walked that back a little bit and there are some, I don't know if they call them forgers anymore or not, but there are more local people to help identify brands like yours. And I, I think that's a good thing. It's definitely a good thing. You know, honestly, I, I think that we, wouldn't be where we are today if not for the early collaborations um with whole foods back then yeah uh, it, yeah how how did you um when you were doing that and and obviously trying to to do whole foods is a challenge enough but um did you get early into the e-commerce or direct to consumer or how did you how did you tackle that you know it's kind of funny because we I mean, the meal kit delivery was all e-commerce driven, right? Because that's how we, we did it. Except that, you know, we did not um, raise um, millions and millions of dollars to build very complex backend. But, you know, I, I came from kind of the e-com world, e-com 1.0 world back, yeah. in, back in London. So we did continue to have a little bit of e-commerce, but, you know, it was absolutely not a profitable model. Or it wasn't very scalable because we were shipping refrigerated products that were liquid so it's really heavy right it's just it's not yeah <laughs> heavy and cold <laughs> two killers right yeah absolutely but we did that because you know we wanted we we're working with a pr agency and we wanted to be able to tell you know the national media that we're trying to get coverage in that we are available nationally right, right. If you have e-commerce you're available nationally it doesn't matter what sort of distribution you have with retailers and so we kind of kept that but 
honestly, it was chugging along really slowly for, you know, quite a few years because, you know, it's really the diehard fans who would be willing to pay $70, $80 for shipping. Right. Um, yeah, because yeah, it's pretty heavy and right? you have to ship across the country and you can't take a week to get that, right? You have to do like three-day ad. Um, and really, it was only about three years ago or so where we ended up, uh, I think it was about 2018, 2019. Right. That we started working with a fulfillment partner that was able to, uh, that had, you know, um, warehouses across the country. And all of a sudden, you know, we could ship by ground. Yeah. Two days, yeah, then we're in business. So we've been doing DTC uh, a lot more in the last few years because of that, because we were able to have that unlock. How did um, the pandemic affect your business? Well, it affected our business in so many different ways. I would say that, um, first and foremost, right, product portfolio changed. So we have, um, I would say, two uh, subcategories of products, what we call kind of grab-and-go products with our you know, bone broth cups and our noodle bowls. So they were doing really well before the pandemic because they offer that next level convenience. So right. that you could have, you know, you could have a, your, your healthy bone broth at lunch in a meeting on the road. Uh, and all of a sudden with the pandemic, people weren't really uh, needing that level of convenience. Uh, and so then we saw sales for that kind of went down. But thankfully we had uh, our cook at home items as well because we have a line of our, you know, ramen, we have our rice noodles. And we definitely saw that uh, take off. Right, because uh, a lot of uh, consumers after a while they're like, oh my gosh, I I want, I miss my part C, you know, I, I can't go <laughs> to a restaurant, but I want to eat it, so can I cook it at home? And you can't really get part C noodles easily, you know, nationwide, right? Maybe you might have a, a version of it at some of the Asian supermarkets, but they have like very short shelf life. And so all of a sudden, um, we definitely saw like a huge uh, increase in our cook at home products, people wanting to cook at home or wanting to make their gourmet ramen. Because our ramen is not like, we're not talking about instant ramen. We're talking about, you know, you want your momofuku quality ramen experience at home right. now that you can enjoy in a restaurant, right? So we definitely uh, see quite a lot of changes in our product portfolio. And then we saw a lot of changes in our channels as well, kind of a channel shift. Um, you know, prior to COVID, I think grocery was definitely a dominant channel of ours. But, you know, we were actually impacted, um, I would say, at the beginning of the pandemic, because again, being a refrigerated item, we are sharing, you know, refrigerated truck space with the essentials, right? With the milk, the bacon, right. the right. the yogurts, you know, and, and all the essential items, they were flying off the shelves because people were stockpiling that, right? And and for a while, the major distributors were not shipping our products, right? Because they, they, their trucks were filled with just the major necessities that stores needed. And so we yeah. found ourselves in the situation where our products were stuck um, at warehouses and not on shelves at Whole Foods and other grocery stores, it was brutal and, and it was out of stock and consumers couldn't buy that. So um, what happened was then a lot of consumers were saying, hey, I used to buy your, your products at Whole Foods, I can't find them, uh, and now I'm going to your website buying them. So we definitely saw a huge lift uh, on DTC. Um, and we also had you know pre-existing relationships with some online partners, uh, the meal kits of the world, the online grocery delivery. Right. Uh, companies and of course they saw a huge lift last year with the pandemic as everyone shifted a lot more to trying to uh, avoid going to stores and so we got the lift from there as well so you know net net we we survived um but definitely there were a lot of different pivots that we had mm -hmm, that we yeah. had to adapt to it, it it was very odd when i remember when i first heard about some scarcity of of, of toilet paper paper products and stuff whatever i went to a local albertson's good size store 
And of course, walked in and there's no paper products. So there's there's no toilet paper, there's no paper towels, there's no you know baby uh, product stuff, nothing. Yeah. And and then I walk over to and their aisle happens to have sort of the packaged soups on one side and the canned soups on the other. So there's no, there's no Campbell's cream of mushroom, chicken noodle, nothing gone. I mean, there's nothing. It's just bare. And on the other side, no top ramen, right? All gone. <laughs> I walk over to the meat department. Everything is chucked full. Freezers are chucked full, right? <laughs> all the coffins are all chucked full. There's ribs stacked, whatever else. I'm thinking to myself, only in America, in the face of a possible panic, would people buy toilet paper and leave protein sitting there? You know, it's like, what? How does that work? It's the so, end of the world. They have no fridge space. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but it's it's one of those things that I, I think shifted, you know, obviously shifted a lot of people. And I saw that with you know people that I work with and, and people who had some supply chain issues and and you know as well. But the interesting thing is going to be as we come out of this, and hopefully we will soon is um, are those consumers' habits of shopping going to change or now that they've had this idea of going online or uh, ordering to pick up or having Walmart deliver, for goodness sakes, um, what do you think about, you know, and how are you looking forward with your products to to say, are, are they going to go back into the stores and roam around a lot? Or are they going to go, hey, you know, I, I really don't need to do that. I think that um, some may go back to store because some, you know, but I think that a lot of people will, will, will probably move to a hybrid model. I, I use a hybrid model. I, I was using it before a little bit, but uh, for me, it was kind of weird, which is, you know, because I, I literally would be shopping uh, on good eggs on my phone in the bathtub yeah. at, you know, 11 o'clock at night. around to it, right? And then during COVID, I couldn't get a single slot because they were so maxed out, right? Like, literally, the people like, who were there at 12 midnight waiting for the slots to open to buy it. I was like, oh, I'm not going to do that. So I ended up actually going to the grocery stores a lot more because uh, I couldn't get a slot. Um, but in, yeah, yep. yeah. Yeah, for online delivery, and now, now it's kind of loosened up. They've kind of buttoned everything, their logistics a little bit more together and expanded their capabilities and everything, right? But I think that um, a lot of people that didn't use to buy groceries online are probably going to do that, continue doing that. But I think it's going to be a hybrid model where they might want to go into stores for certain specific things um, and, and go online for others. And so I think that online is absolutely going to be a big part of our grocery shopping. And I agree with a lot of articles that have been written, which is it's accelerated um, and it's not going away. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I would agree. I think it's, it's definitely the change is here and, um, and, and probably going to stay. Um, I, I, I I want to get back to a couple couple of things we'll visit in a minute, but before that, I want to make sure that we talk about you've got some new products, number one, and you've got a Kickstarter campaign going. Can you tell us a little bit more about the the products and, and the Kickstarter? Absolutely. So we're launching two new products that are part of our stir fry kit range. You know, we've been working on them actually for quite a bit, trying to make sure we get the sauce taste right without using any you know, um, ingredients that, that we don't want to use, right? So right. this kind of been slowly simmering away. Um, and we literally accelerated that very rapidly um, in June, like in the middle of the pandemic, because we, <laughs> we saw we saw the trend, which is that people are sure. cooking at home. They are buying the noodles. And so the need for it is huge. And we want to get it out much quicker than, you know, really kind of a fire uh, under us, get it going. And so we have a Pad Thai stir fry kit and a teriyaki ramen stir fry kit. What's great about this kit is that 
um, you have the sauces, like two packs of noodles with two sauces in one kit. It creates a lot of versatility so that, you know, you could add whatever leftovers you have, you know, whatever you want to do that. They're both plant-based so that, again, um, it allows for maximum flexibility so that, you know, if you are uh, on a plant-based diet, you could totally use the Pad Thai kit. A lot of times the Pad Thai sauce has fish sauce in it, but we decided to make it without just to offer that convenience and flexibility. Right. And, yeah, so we're very excited about it, you know, really responding to kind of the trend of cooking at home. Uh, and making sure that our consumers can use the noodles a lot more easily, right? Because otherwise they have to have so many different things in the pantry. Um, and a lot of times uh, before you end up finishing your, your different bottles of sauces, they expire. Um, and that Kickstarter is kind of an idea we came up with as well, kind of, uh, I would say, sometime last year, with, with most trade shows still being... Um, up in the air this year, right? We, we have no yes. idea. <laughs> we have no idea where that's going to go and, and how we're going to get to meet our retailers. We wanted to find a way uh, to create some sort of a product awareness, some sort of momentum and excitement. And we thought that the Kickstarter could be just a great way of um, bringing together our community, whether it is in the food industry where we have um, a lot of fans of our products. Uh, it's always great when you have fans uh, who are from the food industry because you know you guys know uh, yes. what you like, right? You guys have very high standards. Um, and also from our existing consumers and our DTC customers, wanted to give them an opportunity to really be the first to get their hands on the products, you know, and hopefully using it as a way of fulfilling the, um, the consumer demand that we can show to retailers because we're creating, again, kind of like a new category. And, right. and every time, the problem is that when we're creating a new category, we don't have a lot of comp data to show the retailers. <laughs> so you know, it's like, oh, and that's always the challenge. And we thought the Kickstarter would be a good way of just providing us some data that we could share with our retailers as well. And 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 it's um, I mean, it's a challenge because, of course, uh, demoing, sampling, getting people to taste the product is like such a huge part of trial. Um, but it's, it's a good thing to do a kind of an alternative campaign and, uh, it, it get people to get people to try it that way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And we're super excited. We just launched our Kickstarter, you know, um, about the beginning of the year and we were funded in just over a day. Uh, and literally a week later, uh, or 10 days later, we were selected by Kickstarter as one of the projects we love. Uh, and, and so that, that to us is a huge endorsement and we're so excited about that. Yes, and that will go out to everybody on their mailing list, and um, yeah, it'll it'll do even more good, which is which is great. You know, um, mm -hmm. did did you when you were looking at this and and the idea that people wanted to cook stuff at home, whatever? I mean, if I think about um, in that kind of I won't say Asian fusion because that gets confusing, but but in the Asian uh, mm -hmm. food area, you know, to me, pad thai teriyaki that's like you know number one, number two. Um, did you look at some other ones as well, other types of things that might be a little bit less mainstream? <laughs> Absolutely. It is so funny. I actually wanted something that is a little bit less mainstream. And so we were using this um, online customer research tool. And you're right. They were number one and number two. So, I mean, we already have a part-time model anyway. And so I wanted the part-time kit. But teriyaki wasn't really our, it didn't come to me naturally because it is pretty mainstream, but given the kind of consumer demand for it, we decided to launch with it. But we have a few other kind of in the pipeline uh, that is, uh, I would say, much more uh, fun, right? So, right. Uh, right. yeah, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Um, I, I want to go back, Nona, too, because there's, you know, other founders and stuff who are in the audience, but may not, you know, be 
at the level where you are at this point. And that is, how did you handle from a production standpoint, um, again, working with something with combination, cooked, refrigerated, how did you scale to meet your, meet your growth? Yeah, you know, I think that right now we have a hybrid model where we uh, have our own production facilities for some of the products and then we work with contract manufacturers for some other products. Right. I mean, th- this is always one of those, right? I think the, the conventional wisdom is that you focus on what you are strong in and um, you don't spread yourself too thin. Right. Right. And so conventional wisdom is such that I think in the last number of years, most brands have opted for outsourcing production entirely. Um, and I totally get that, you know, because I think that uh, managing a production facility is really intense, right? You have to worry about QA. You have so many people you have to manage um, and you have to make sure that you have all the different certifications. So I would say that contract manufacturing is certainly um the easier route. Um, I think having having said that, I think it's also very dependent on specific product that you're making. You know, for us, making soups is not that complicated. The equipment required aren't that expensive. And I think it's very different if you're looking at, let's say, making a, you know, a canned soda, right? Just just the equipment you have to invest in will make it very prohibitive. And, And so I think that a lot of times you have to um, understand what is the what are the manufacturing requirements and, and you know if there's already a lot of spare capacity out there in the industry do you want to invest do you have the ability to invest in the equipment and all the different capital expenditure to build your own facility and I, I think that also the the better for you movement and a lot of emerging brands have also um, impacted co-manufacturers to raise their game a little bit um, you know, knowing they have to turn out higher quality stuff, knowing that, you know, it's not just finding the cheapest parsley flakes you can find to put in there. Mm-hmm. It's doing other things. So I think the industry as a whole has kind of risen from that, you know, from that, that push, um, you know, it, it works out well. Uh, no, no. Can you talk to us just a little bit about um, obviously when you're growing with this and, and uh, you, you've grown fairly rapidly, whatever, how did you handle financing and capital to do that? You know, when we, when we first started, uh, it was mostly a lot of friends and family and angels. Yep. And then, yep. you know, in 2017 or between 2016 and 2017, I think there were a lot of uh, new food funds, a lot of family offices, and um, yep. capital was pretty readily available. And, and so, you know, at that time, I was approached by a number of different, I guess, investors. And so I did do kind of a series A that you know, a, a round of VC uh, yep. funding. Uh, you know, otherwise, I like to look at all different cash options. And I feel that, you know, I think that friends and family is an option. You know, VC funding is an option. Line of credit, absolutely, with the bank is a big one always. You know, then there's ABL, which we've been doing as well, right? Looking at asset-based lending or factoring, you know, there are lots of different right. yep. things around that. And then also looking at equipment leases, we've used equipment leases a lot as well to fund some of our capital needs. Um, those are all options. And then really managing AP and AR, right? I, I think that we've also, uh, you know, worked with uh, suppliers at one point, you know, like a long time ago, you know, we would buy, let's say, tape from them, but they would supply the actual equipment and they would amortize the cost of the equipment into the tape that they charge us over a number of years. 
right? So there are different ways of doing that, right? Of having right. maybe your supplier fund some of that or giving you better terms. You know, with some of our suppliers, we've been able to negotiate on slightly longer terms. And so I think all those things have to be ways of looking at funding and certainly PPP was super helpful. And then last year with the pandemic, you know, besides PPP, I think there were a number of um, organizations that were giving out grants as well. And so you want to be on the lookout for that. Um, I uh, I was kind of uh, lucky or grateful to receive like a $20,000 grant from, you know, Lowe's Community Fund, which is great, you know, no strings attached. Right. And so those, those, those are things that are super helpful. And I think back in, or sometimes, you know, even like the city or the county or the state may have different kinds of grants available, um, like hiring grants and so forth. So I think that those are all different ways and things to look at. And then finally, just managing AP and AR. You know, you want your AR as, as low as possible. I think we, one of the months we managed to get AR down to like 16 days, right? So that you're, you're kind of, uh, or whether you're DSO, you know, yeah. days. Sales outstanding. <laughs> How you collect cash is important. You, you, you have to, yeah, you, you have to be flexible. You know, that's it. And particularly with launch, you know, anytime you're launching, you know, new line, new line, even new products within a line. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, there's a, that requires cash to get that to to work, and not only creating the product, and but also in moving it off the shelf once you uh, once you get the the distribution. Um, do the new products, Nona, anything um, with the new products that would possibly put you into distribution in in some other places some newer places yeah yeah you know we're, we're super excited we've already gotten uh uh a number of retailers who have said yes to those products um and then grocery retailers and we've put a number of online retailers as well uh they've said uh, they are bringing the products in so super excited about that uh i think that uh when we speak to retailers uh, whether it's online or offline Everyone definitely appreciates the whole cooking at home uh, trend. It is something that really resonates with them. So we're yeah. very, very excited about our new products because they're also priced right as well, you know, uh, for the consumers. And if and if our listeners want to get uh, a heck of a good deal, the Kickstarter campaign is still going on. So you can uh, absolutely gather and see what's what's going on. Be a participant, and uh, it's uh, you know they will they will I know they will taste good. I haven't had them yet, but I know they will taste good when they <laughs> when they get here. So it's going to be uh, a lot of fun. You know, no, I was just what you were talking about before the uh, idea of the hybrid model and whatever. There was um, a woman who's a baker in the Midwest, and she talked about she maintained even though she went to co manufacturing fairly early with her uh, product line, mm -hmm. she maintained kind of a pilot line or whatever so that mm -hmm. she could test the recipes up to scale. So from recipe to formula, right? So yeah. she, she could do that and she could put through on that line a flavor and say, okay, so this is what it's going to be like when I move it to the command, mm -hmm. you know? And so for in, in, even at that level, just keeping that much under your own, you know, uh, under your own control and stuff has got to be a, a positive. No, absolutely. And sometimes um, Coleman has really, really high uh, minimum runs, right? And if you're yep. just launching a product, you don't have all your distribution lined up yet, you could end up with a lot of spoils. And so what, what I really appreciate is that, you know, this gives us an opportunity to just launch flavors and test flavors very quickly to have much smaller runs and to pivot. Um, and it certainly helped us a lot as well uh, during COVID when, you know, certain flavors or certain packaging format 
uh, did well or didn't do well, we were able to just shift with it and still maintain really high, you know, OTIP, right? Our kind of uh, on-time info, our, our fail rate was still very much in the in the 96, 97% uh, range for most of the months. So that was really good. That's great. Us. Yeah. And and folks, if you want more information, obviously you can go to www.nonalim.com and find out all that good stuff. Um, Nona, we, we try to... Um, um, have our guests, if they can, um, take a look back at some of the major challenges that they had to overcome to grow the business to where it is. Um, if, if you were able to choose one and tell us a little bit about how you dealt with it, it'd probably be helpful. <laughs> you know, I'm going to answer this question by not answering the question in that. Okay. Um, you know, there's a perception that sometimes like brands have a biggest challenge and we are overcoming and everything is now smooth sailing. And that's absolutely not the case. <laughs> sometimes I feel like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm drowning in challenge after challenge after challenge, right? You know, if, if, if we do really well, then maybe you could get supply chain issues or you have scaling issues. And then if you don't do well, then you get stressed with either top line issues or velocity or trade, right? Or, or, or you know, you have Cox issues. And so I feel like... um. I feel like we're almost always having different kinds of challenges and it can be very disheartening. And then having talked to a bunch of other, you know, founders and entrepreneurs, we find that that's almost the same across the board. So what I almost say to all, all our fellow founders out there, right, if you're feeling stressed or something like that, is that take heart, which is that to me, there isn't a concept of a biggest challenge. To me, there are only challenges after challenges. <laughs> it's just a series of challenges. Yes, exactly. It's just how much pain you're willing to take as a founder. <laughs> I, I I have a a friend who's also a client who in in a time when and that hasn't changed. He was raising money, moving production to another co-manufacturer, and hiring um a sales or a regional two regional salespeople actually at the time, and he was just going crazy. We could hardly even connect. We finally caught coffee together and then sort of in this desperation thing, he says to me, Steve, he goes, when is this going to end? And I said, well, if you're lucky and keep growing, it doesn't end. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So guess what? You're going to be doing three things, you know, at once for a long time, you know? So that's how that works. Well, no, Hey, I really appreciate you taking the time um, to be with us today and, and for uh, telling us a little bit about your story and uh, also about, uh, about the new products and uh we hope to uh, have you back on the show again sometime when uh you know you've got uh, 50 different uh, uh, you know SKUs it should be great sounds good i love to <laughs> <laughs> all right i really appreciate it thanks again nona and thanks to the rest of you for joining us today on the next level brands podcast we're brought to you today by kitchen to shelf the educational resource for CG- cpg entrepreneurs and emerging brands Kitchen to Shelf is also the sponsor of Words to Grow By, a collection of great advice and inspiration from guests who have appeared on the Next Level podcast. If you need some weekly counsel from fellow founders and industry leaders, try Words to Grow By from Kitchen to Shelf, available at Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, and free subscription available at kitchentoshelf.com. That's kitchen, the number two, shelf.com. This is Steve Clear, and we'll see you all next time. Thanks for listening to the Next Level Brands Podcast with G. Stephen Clear. Learn more at next with two X's, levelbrands.com. While you're there, be sure to sign up for the Next Level Brands email list or subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode.